I, I particularly enjoyed it being able to sing. I don't know, some of you were here last week. I've got a confession to make. I, w- I was faking singing at points last week because I lost my voice, essentially, and I feel like um, God kind of massaged me through the week because I had to, had to talk a lot last week. Um, so it was nice to actually proper sing this morning, <laughs> actually raise my voice, and uh, thank you, team, for the way that you did that for us. God, uh, we do just pray that uh, we would have an encounter with you through your word this morning. Amen. If uh, you weren't here last week, we kicked off this series on Jonah, and I'm going to have a little go at just quickly paraphrasing the story of Jonah, because it's such a great story, but also because we're into chapter two now, and chapter two is largely a song, or kind of like a poem, and it'll make uh, more sense if we just remember this amazing story, this terrific story that uh, we're dipping into. So you might remember... um, that God comes to this Jewish prophet called Jonah and says, I want you to go to this great city called Nineveh and I want you to sort of preach repentance to them. Their wickedness has come before me, the language uh, that the scripture uses says, and I want you to go and warn them, essentially. And Jonah, uh, did he do it? No. No. Uh, Nineveh was that way, Jonah said, I'm going that way. And he jumps on a boat, headed for this place called Tarshish in the opposite direction to Nineveh. And you'll know the story, I, I hope. He's out on this boat and it says that the Lord sends a terrible storm, whips up this frightening storm. Jonah, uh, interestingly, is sleeping uh, during this storm, but the sailors who are manning the boat... Um, They're just going crazy. They're calling out to their gods. They're not Jewish. They're saying, save us if you can, God, and and nothing's happening. So they go and wake Jonah up, and they say, we've all tried appealing to our gods, and this storm's just getting worse. Maybe if you call out to your God, something can happen, something can change, and the storm can be stilled. And what does Jonah say? He, he does a mere culpa. He's like, oh, actually, it's a good thing you wake me up. It is, it's my fault. It's my God that we need to talk to. Uh, and it says that the sailors knew uh, because Jonah had told them that he was fleeing the presence of God. Jonah says, if you throw me over, the storm will become calm and your lives will be saved. And the sailors rather valiantly Don't throw him over immediately. They try and row back to the land, to safety, but it says the storm only got worse. And eventually uh, they cry out to Jonah's God. They say, forgive us, have mercy on us. Please don't judge us uh, for the blood that we're going to have on our hands for throwing your subject, your prophet overboard. But it seems like you're doing this. And so they heave him over the side of the boat and it says that the storm stilled immediately. And then this really interesting thing happens where the prophet of God is going down, down, down into that watery grave. And the sailors who are heathens, Gentiles, pagans, they've got other gods, they're not Jews. They make sacrifices to the Jewish God um, and they swear vows to Jonah's God. And it says right at the end of Jonah chapter 1 that God sent a great fish to swallow Jonah up. What a story, hey? What a great story. Um, So we're picking up 
now with Jonah in the belly of this beastly fish. Uh, and what a weird place to be. Um, one of the things, I've read a lot of commentaries uh, concerning Jonah in the last month or two, and one of the things that comes through time and time again from the experts who sort of understand Hebrew literature and the Hebrew language is that um, Jonah is meant to be read in a way that we often don't read it. And Jonah is something of a, a kind of tragic, comic character, actually. Um, he's an idiot, basically. Tragic comedy is, is sort of like a genre that in English goes back at least to Shakespeare. But here in the Bible, we have an example of a tragic, comic story. And um, if you've got anyone in your house that's a bit like uh, my wife or my father, and you're watching one of these sort of tragic comic stories um, where, you know, the protagonist is just making one bad decision after the next and it's just going downhill, uh, people like Sharon and my dad start to cover their eyes and then start to sort of do these backing away from the TV things. This is too painful. I know what he's going to do next. I know what he's going to do. It's just, it's just you know, that, that, that vibe. A little bit like how some of you would experience Mr Bean or someone like that. Like some people love it and then some people are just like, it's, it's too real. <laughs> uh, we're supposed to read Jonah that way. Sometimes I think in, in Sunday school, we kind of think he's this faithful dude who, I don't know, has a worship party in the whale. Um, I want to push back on that a little bit this morning because it's not what seems to be going on in the scripture as I read it closely. And probably at the heart of why Jonah is seen to be an idiot, and we talked about this last week, is that it says that Jonah, multiple times in the first chapter of Jonah, is fleeing from the presence of God. Um, Jonah is fleeing from, and I'm going to use this word and unpack it a little bit, the kind of terrific presence of God. Um, there's something about God's presence that is difficult for him to bear at this point. Part of it is that he's fleeing from God's call to give Israel's barbaric enemies a chance to repent. And this is a terrible notion for Jonah. He can't get his head around it. He sort of says, if that's what you want me to go do, God, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. Now, just to... Um, so Jonah's fleeing from the presence of God. Just to, uh, to, to dig into this word a little bit, Graham and I were talking about how to kind of phrase the teaching for this particular chapter, and I might get a talking to a bit later this week because we, we settled on the word weird. It's a weird story, and it's kind of a weird request from Jonah's perspective that God would say, go and um, preach my love to your enemies, basically. Um, but I ended up deciding on a different word, and I thought, I like this word, actually, terrific, because there is something kind of terrific about this story in the way, I don't know who uses the word terrific in your life. For me, it's mostly mums and librarians and people like that, uh, mother-in-laws who have also been librarians. Uh, but if you look in the dictionary, it says that the word terrific in English, in kind of popular usage, means of great size, amount, or intensity. And I think there is something, to, it's not perfect, but it kind of resonates with this idea of the presence of God. Mm. The presence of God is, is, is great, it's amazing, but there's also something difficult about it if you're not kind of in line with it. 
And what makes this word terrific uh, a little bit challenging is uh, the same root word, we've got a similar word, terrible. There's nothing sort of intrinsically bad about being terrific. It could be good, actually. You're, you're a terrifically good speller or something like that. If you're a terrible speller, that means something quite different, doesn't it? Extremely bad or serious. Some synonyms for um, terrific, tremendous, huge, gigantic, colossal, mighty, great, very great, very big, formidable, extraordinary, excessive, inordinate. Those are all words that we could kind of ascribe to God, actually, in some ways, aren't they? Aren't they? Terrible synonyms, awful, appalling, horrific, horrifying, horrible, horrendous, atrocious, abominable, abhorrent, frightful, fearful, shocking. Probably don't want to really attribute them to God. But I think um, Jonah is a terrific story because it has terrible elements to it. It's got God, who I, I'm going to sort of make a case for this morning, is terrific. His presence is terrific. But there's these terrible elements. There's this idiot prophet who runs away from his God. There's this fish <laughs> that, that swallows uh, the prophet, uh, in which the prophet lives for three days. There's this storm, there's this wicked city, there's all sorts of elements of the story that kind of make it interesting. And most compelling stories have a kind of terrible element, don't they? Actually, Ig Ignatius, I don't know if he's learning this at school, but he said to me the other day when I picked him up, you know, m most stories have a problem that needs to be solved most good stories. And I said, did you learn that in English? Apparently he didn't. So he's either lying or he's a genius. It's hard to know. But I'm often thinking that about him, actually. So the terrible elements kind of make this story compelling. But there is this terrific God, this great God, um, this intense, mighty God, this God who is extraordinary. It's an extraordinary story, but the presence of God, the way that it seems to reveal uh, itself to, to Jonah, what it seems to require of Jonah is extraordinary. Um, Jonah can't get his head around it. One of the things I mentioned briefly last week is if you go uh, and look at the Hebrew for this term presence of God, the term there, the Hebrew word is actually face. So the face of God is the presence of God. And I talked about Jonah fleeing from the presence of God, fleeing from the face of God, being like when you sneak back home from the party that you shouldn't have been at and you've been doing things that you shouldn't have been doing there and you find that dad's still awake in his chair, right? You don't want to face your dad. You can't stand his presence. You want to flee his presence. You want to flee up the stairs into your bedroom. I'll see you in the morning, dad. Just don't look at me. I'm not ready for that. The other thing that's kind of interesting about this phrase, fleeing from the presence of God, is in the Old Testament there's um, two kind of main terms for God. One is kind of a generic uh, kind of deity, which is translated as God. That's not what we read here in Jonah. Uh, the, the name, the term that's used for God here is Lord, right? So you might have picked that up if you have your Bibles in front of you. And Lord is like a, a little bit tricky, actually. Uh, it, it, it actually refers to a title that is given to Israel's God because Israel's God's name is too holy to be said, 
right? Has anyone heard that before? So when Jews say this name of God, they don't say the name of God. It's too holy, so they'll say Hashem, which means the name. And um, I've got uh, the symbol that they kind of use for the name up there uh, on the screen, Yahweh. We, we kind of... We, we, our best guess is that the way that you pronounce God's name is Yahweh, but they won't even write it. They just give these letters as a representation of it. So I think that's significant because it's saying that part of what's going on in this story is not just Jonah is fleeing from God, but he's fleeing from Israel's God. Partly, I want to suggest, because Israel's God seems to be asking Jonah to care about Israel's enemies, um, about Jonah's enemies. And these were uh, pretty formidable enemies. I was looking at some uh, historical uh, records this week from about the period of the story and uh, of, the, of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians. One of the kings actually was so proud of the cruel ways that he tortured his enemies, which would have included the Jewish people, that he had these wonderful reliefs, uh, you know, like... Uh, not quite statues, but carved images of people being skinned alive, of people having poles inserted through their bodies. Um, and that was like something that he was proud of. So perhaps uh, understandable that Jonah had some issues with that. Perhaps understandable that that would be beyond Jonah's comprehension of what God would require his people to do. And um, Jonah is really a story that is not just about him as an individual prophet, as an individual person, but indeed is a story, I think, that we read throughout Scripture. So there's this sense that Jonah is like all human beings, is like the first human beings. And we talked last week about how there's this story right at the beginning of the Bible. God creates the world. He creates human beings to live in his presence. But he says to them, you can do anything except for eat the fruit of this tree in the middle of the garden. If you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die. And we find the same word that we find in Jonah. Uh, it talks about the man and his wife who ate that fruit, who, who disobeyed God hiding themselves from the face of Yahweh. They'd sinned, they couldn't face God because of what they'd done. And um, as much as uh, we can sort of see this resonance between Jonah and this creation and fall story, we can also sort of see Jonah. And the Jewish people have often considered Jonah as a picture of them as God's people, them as a nation. Jonah is like Israel. We've been looking a little bit at the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah was uh, a prophet, like Jonah was a prophet to some degree, and he was warning the Jews, saying, you guys are not living according to the covenant that God's made with you. Actually, you're not, you're not living in a way that is warranting having God present among you. Babylon is going to come in, they're going to raid us, and it's going to be, in some ways, a work of God. 
And this was just a crazy idea for the Jewish people, that God could be involved in taking them from the promised land and taking them under the control of a foreign empire. Jeremiah is attributed with this book that's quite close to Jeremiah in the Bible called Lamentations. And it's this book where Jeremiah is um, looking at the destruction that is uh, has come upon Jerusalem under the Babylonian Empire and he's lamenting and he's crying and we can see uh, similar language here again in lament the lamentations of Jeremiah the face of the Lord has scattered his people he no longer watches over them they're not in countenance with one another anymore because of his judgment I found this a kind of convicting thought as I've wrestled with it this week. Because um, if Jonah can be about all human beings, about the first human beings, if Jonah can be about God's people and the people of Israel, the question uh, that's begged for me is, can Jonah be about me? Right? And I mentioned last week that um, people have kind of considered that the book of Jonah is a bit like a mirror that Israel is supposed to hold up for itself and to look into and go, oh, that's a bit uncomfortable, actually. This idiot, he's, he's an idiot in the way that I'm an idiot. And I think about, well, are there, are there senses in which I am fleeing from the presence of God? You know that feeling, right, when you're in the wrong. How difficult it is to face the person that you've wronged. How difficult it is to face someone who's in the right, who might call you on it. How difficult it is to come to church on a Sunday and to worship God when you know there's junk in your life. How difficult it is to have your quiet time if you've been doing something that you know that you shouldn't have been doing. How difficult it is to see God face to face, to be in God's presence when you've been not living up to the agreement that you might have with him, when you've been doing things that you know would grieve him or hurt him. And so we flee, right? We run from the presence of God. And I don't want to let the moment pass without giving you an opportunity just to consider, is that something that's happening in your life, actually? Maybe it's even been difficult for you here this morning to worship because of something that's going on in your life. Something else that happens, actually, uh, that comes up in the story is it, we're, not, we're not always running from God. Another way that we cope with being on the wrong side of God is going to sleep. That's what Jonah did in the boat. And so um, we might not come to church on the mornings when we don't feel like we can come into the presence of God. That's just human psychology. But another way that we can do it, uh, well, we know that we're on band. We know that uh, people expect us to be here. But we come in and we sleep. Right? We don't actually really enter into what's going on. I don't know if you've ever experienced a teenager being rebellious in that way. They're not running from your presence, but they may as well be in bed. <laughs> You're around the dinner table trying to get a conversation out of them. They've shut down. They've gone to sleep. They're in denial about their situation. Now, it's unfortunate 
if we're in this place, if we feel like there's a barrier between us and the presence of God, if we can't enter into the presence of God, if we can't handle encountering God, seeing his face, looking towards him. Because if we read through the scripture, we see very clearly time after time that Yahweh, the Lord God, is the source of life. And to be apart from God is to be dead, is to be as Adam and Eve were from the moment that they were exiled from him, from the moment that they, they, they sinned on a pathway to death. God had intended for them to live in his presence eternally and they surely died because they disobeyed. Um, and so there's this sense in which we're all caught up in this, this phenomena of, of struggling with God's presence because of the junk that we let into our lives. And in a sense, being an exile from God. We talked about Jonah being an exile story. And this makes sense of the way that Jonah seems to be okay with dying, right? The, the way that Jonah can say to the sailors, actually, it's down to me. Throw me over the edge. Because... Um, and this is where our psychology is modern Western people is a little bit different to ancient peoples and particularly uh, ancient Jewish kind of way of understanding life. But there's a sense in which f for ancient Jews to be in exile was a fate worse than death. Actually, if you're created to live in community with God, um, they didn't have quite such a developed sort of theology, it seems, of hell. Uh, they talk about Sheol in the Old Testament. They talk a lot about just being dead, the place of the dead. In fact, Jonah talks about it. So um, if you're in exile from God, you don't inherit what God wants for you as his people. It doesn't really matter if you're dead or alive. You, you, to be spiritually dead is somehow more significant than being physically dead. And so Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. It's over for me anyway. I may as well just go the whole hog. I may as well be physically dead if I'm already spiritually dead. If I'm outside of the presence of God, I may as well be at the bottom of the ocean. And this is um, how chapter one ended um, so fabulously, so terrifically, that Yahweh provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I want you at this stage, before we go on any further, to forget that you know how this story ends. Because at this point, Jonah doesn't, right? He's in the watery depths, a picture of death for um, ancient peoples, the reality of death. He, he probably wouldn't have been able to swim he wouldn't have been able to swim in a storm. He is, he is kind of giving his life up. He's, he's going to his grave. And there is something kind of comic and tragic that it's not straightforward either. A fish comes along and eats him. Can't he just drown in a respectable way? No, it's like um, as uh, the, the account's coming to us, there's something almost funny about the fact that this is like double dead. Right? It's like, okay, you're really dead. You, you, thought, you thought you were dead and you couldn't get any deader. Well, this is deader than dead, right? Because uh, you're not going to live, right, in a fish's belly. 
I mean, that's the problem that people have with this story. They're like, that's insane. How could that happen? Someone live in a fish's belly. People don't live in fish's bellies. If you're in a fish's belly, you're not just dead. You're dead, dead. And Jonah, in a sense, was dead, dead, dead because he's outside of the presence of God. He's into the watery grave. And then he's in the belly of this beast. Triple dead. And so I want to read um, Jonah's song as he's in the belly of the fish for us just now. Um, And I'm going to read it in a way that might push some of your buttons, but I'll explain why. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol of death, I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever. Yet you brought me up out from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those whose worship is in vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish and it spewed Jonah out upon the land. Now, where I want to poke you with that reading is... Jonah was where he was, triple dead, because God had asked him to go and preach repentance to a foreign people and he'd refused to do it. Do you see much repentance in that song? And scholars kind of, they wrestle with this song of Jonah's a little bit because some say, well, You know, he's acknowledging God and he says he's going to make a sacrifice to God, but he never actually says, I've done the wrong thing. He never actually says, God, if you'll spare me, I will go to the Ninevites, right? And the suggestion is he's kind of like grabbing his religious heritage a little bit in the Psalms and going, this is what you do, right? This is what religious people do. This is what prophets do. Even when we're about to die, we go back to the treasure of scripture, to our religious heritage, and we stand on that. But it's not clear whether it's that sincere, actually. Almost as though there's a kind of posturing, or at least a wrestle between posturing and sincerity. There's a few bits I just want to pick out quickly. Jonah says in his song, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again on your holy temple. And Israel and the Jews would have read this and gone, we know that story. 
actually, because we've been banished from God's presence. We've been banished from his sight. And we've had to look longingly back at a temple that doesn't exist. This is an exile story. I wonder if we are going to identify with Jonah, whether there's something for us to learn. Are we real about where we're at? Because some of us are double dead, right? We're spiritually dead. We know we're physically going to die. Are we facing up to that reality? We might be exiled in some sense as well, and yet somehow just going through the motions. God might be saying to us, there are people who need to hear that I love them, that I care about them, that they need to turn from their sin. And we can kind of go, well, that sounds a bit hard. I will go to church. You know what I mean? I'll read the Bible. I'll sing the songs. But I don't want to have to do anything terrifying like go and talk to some people who I don't really like about how God loves them. I don't know about you, but that's just a tiny bit convicting for me. The sliver of a chance that I could be a religious poser, even when I'm double dead, singing. Jonah had every reason to be terrified in that fish. It was a terrible situation. He was, he was double dead. He was, he was in a watery grave inside the belly of a beast. There's no coming out of a situation like that. For all his posturing. But the thing is, his God was more terrific than his situation. Was terrible says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Being swallowed by the fish, it turns out, is actually God's plan of salvation for Jonah. And bigger than that, it's God's plan of salvation for the Ninevites. God is about his business of revealing his compassionate nature, his love to Jonah's enemies. We've seen it with the sailors. We see it here where God says, you want to just die singing and let that be the end of it. No, I've got a mission for you, Jonah. It's not about you and whether you live or die. It's about other people who haven't had a revelation of the goodness of God yet. And it's so completely about grace. You might have picked up how haughtily I read this line. Because this is right at the end of Jonah's songs. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Who's clinging to worthless idols in this story? Well, I can tell you who's dead. And I can tell you who's actually repented and who's made a covenant with God, and who's worshipped God. The sailors have. The Gentiles. And here's God's prophet, the bottom of the sea, about to die. God 
presences himself in the temple, in the promised land. That's Jonah's understanding. And yet here we see he comes even into the depths of death because he loves Jonah and he loves the Ninevites and he will see his plan outworked. Could I get the band up, please? I believe this morning that God is inviting us to look at Jonah and see whether or not we see ourselves staring back. It's a difficult mirror to look into, but I think that that is what this book is about. I want to challenge you this morning. Can you abide the presence of God when you do that? Do you feel like you can look him in the face? Is there a chance that you've been avoiding God? That you're asleep somehow? Is there a chance that you're a little spiritually dead, actually? And you know that your relationship with God, that the passion that you once had isn't there anymore? Have you been ignoring his call on your life? Has he been challenging you to share his love, to make his compassionate nature known to people? And you batted it away, continued to come to church, continued to do Bible studies, continued to posture from the belly of the beast. Are you stuck in your sin? Are you on a sure path to death and destruction? Are you double dead or triple dead? I don't say that with judgment because as I look in this mirror, these are the questions that come to me about the state of my heart, about the state of my relationship with God, about the difficulty that I have looking him in the face some mornings. God drew near to Jonah, even in the depths of the grave. I want to point you to Romans chapter 6 here, which is where the passage on the screen comes from. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because if everyone, anyone has died, they have been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore, do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, but by grace. It is the universal condition that we will feel a sense of shame, that we will struggle to encounter God, to look into his face. We'll want to run up the stairs when we realise that he knows what's going on. But he draws near to us and he loves us. I want to just tell you a quick story. I know uh, we're right on 11. I was wrestling with God last week, um, just feeling like I needed something more from Him. I needed to encounter Him in a new way. And um, I felt like His word to me was a question, was I prepared to be a holy fool for Him? And if you know anything about my psychology, who I am, I haven't been. I I, I don't want to be a fool. (laughs) I I want to be wise. I want to be smart. I want to be the person who understands the way the world works, what God wants of me. And I felt like God had something powerful to do last week during the service. And it just, it didn't seem to happen on Sunday morning. And I had to go uh, to the living room that evening and, and preach again. And I had largely the same sermon and I just... I just felt like it wasn't enough, right? Like what God wanted to do, what needed to happen in people's lives wasn't going to happen <laughs> if it was just a repeat. And I kind of did the holy fool thing, actually. I, I, I opened up a part of the service at the end of it where I, I just hoped that God would do something because I was out of answers. And it wasn't like there were fireworks or anything, but God was definitely moving uh, at the living room on Sunday night. And I was crying out to God as I stood there, Holy Spirit, come. We need you. There's people who need breakthrough. And as I came down off the little sort of stage thing that they've got there, there's a regular at the living room who's a bit of a rascal. As, as often as not, he's kind of making distractions. He's in a wheelchair. Some of you will know who he is. And he said, when you were talking just then, there was a dove above you. And he was kind of confused because I didn't say anything about doves. I wasn't even talking about the Holy Spirit. But he was like, what was, what was that? What, what was that? And he um, got up out of his wheelchair and was praising God. And I was praising God next to him and we prayed for each other. And I mean... It felt like God was going, it's there, it'll come, you know, like just whatever God's calling you to, the way that he's calling you to die to self, particularly for the mission that he has, he'll come. Can I ask you to stand up because we're going to sing in a moment, I'm going to finish this story. But um, I went back um, to study Jonah again this week. And it's just so rich to me. I'm like, there's more here that I'm not seeing. There's more here that I'm not seeing. And, and I thought, what is Jonah? 
what like what's the name mean in Hebrew culture? You know, names always have a significance, and particularly in a story like this, that's so rich symbolically. And you want to know what Jonah means? Dove. It means dove, and it means dove in the way that someone would speak to a lover, the way that you read it in Song of Solomon's, I love you, my dove. Amittai, Jonah's father's name, means truth. Jonah means dove. There's a lot going on there. But the one point that I want to make that I think that God spoke to me about is he loves us. We might be idiots, you know. We might hold that mirror up and see ourselves all too clearly in Jonah. But he's not going to let that stop the outworking of his compassion in your life, the downloading of his love into your circumstance. He's not going to let that stop you being an agent of his love in the world. And so if you can just this morning pray with me this prayer. Lord, I realise that there is a life that is richer and fuller and more meaningful than the one that I choose to live so often. Lord, I want to see your face. Reveal yourself to me, I pray, Lord. If there's anyone here this morning who has been sinning, who's having trouble looking into the Father's face, you're thinking you're a Jonah. You're his precious dove. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You might be double dead. You might be triple dead. He's drawing near to you because he loves you. Amen. Thanks for uh, suffering an extra five minutes there. Love you, Lord.